On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the mad titan Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. What's going on with you? Liam, you've started turning this around on me lately. Yes, uh, When I, I asked know. you how you're doing... I wasn't you sure you me. would notice. Oh, no. My gimmick <laughs> I, has failed. I notice all, and I'm not going to tell you how I'm doing, though I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. Uh, Liam, uh, w- at the time that this recording is going out into the world, it's going to be well after... The Halloween season, but at the time that we're recording it, we're we're in the depths of it. I mean, we're we're yeah, barreling yeah. towards the big day, uh, which is one of the reasons that we chose this particular film to talk about on this episode, Night of the Creeps, Fred Decker's film from 1986. Uh, I feel like we've already exhausted in our other podcast the whole discussion about what you think about Halloween and the Halloween season. But I just want to get a general sense now that that the day is is just about here, like. Have you fully embraced your Halloweenness at this point? Do you have decorations uh, up? I do. I do. Uh, we did that. I mean, we. I, I think I said this to you before that we decided to decorate on September first, and we got right. around to it on October sixth. So you know, <laughs> things have been a little hectic here. But uh, yeah, we have most of our decorations up. I purchased one of those. Anyone who's been to Home Depot, I don't know if you have an equivalent in Canada, but they have these like bags of bones. It's like they've got a variety of various decorations, but there's thing that's just it's a bag of bones. It's a bunch of different fake skeletal pieces, not a full skeleton, but that you could use. Those are just still sitting on the dining room table. I can't decide what to do with the bag of bones. Like I remove the bones from the bag, but I, I'm worried about just shoving them in my yard and sure. maybe having someone like steal them or they get yeah, yeah. like we, it gets pretty windy here. I mean, last year we were really excited about Halloween and we bought a series of gravestones, Doug. And uh, and then we came home one day and they were all gone except for one that was like against the house. And uh, I don't like I walked the neighborhood. They're gone, gone. I don't know where they went. They're probably in Indiana. I have no idea what happened to these fucking gravestones. So now I'm a little, you know, <laughs> slow to just put random spooky items in my front yard because it gets really windy out here in a way that I wasn't expecting. So I've got the bones. I've also got another bag. Did you say you weren't expecting that living in the Windy City that you might encounter a little bit of wind? Well, okay. Let's be clear here. Mm, I'm not in the Windy City, Doug. I'm in Chicago land. And I assumed the wind was like a combo of the lake, which I'm not near, and the city, which I'm not near. And while the lake is part of the reason it's windy, it's also just this whole area can get really windy. And like the like I've experienced like a storm before, but the winds that will get casually are like insane. Just things just fly away and I don't know how it happened. Liam, I've noticed that in the introduction to this podcast, we say that we're going to look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller, but we've never looked at any of the television projects up to this point. Yeah, I wish you wouldn't say that because I really don't like want to do much TV. But if if you this made is a, me, this I is a do. repeated thing on our various shows devoted to actors and actresses that you yeah. you do not want to move outside the the scope of film in our discussion. Yeah, I don't. 
what is your deal, man? <laughs> Part of the joy for me of having film podcasts is that it forces me to watch films. And uh, covering TV is just me watching some show I don't like, and I don't want to do that. I, but that's TV just... is so good right now. I keep reading about it. <laughs> well, I'm watching the aspects of TV right now that I enjoy. But when, when you've asked me to watch TV previously, it's mm-hmm. for our other podcast with, about Eric Roberts. Yes. And it's always some guest spot on one episode of a show I don't care about. That's a waste of my time. <laughs> I just well, don't want to do it. I mean, you have to expect that if you're watching uh, a television show specifically for an Eric Roberts appearance, that the quality might be of, of mixed result let's say but i mean that's not necessarily going to be the case in one of our other podcasts like a dick miller appearance on a on a procedural from the 1980s uh, you already lost me i'm already not into it i would do a tv movie that sounds cool oh well we'll, we'll see what's gonna I happen i mean there. don't be wrong doug we didn't take a blood oath for this particular podcast <laughs> because i'm smart and i know i learned from last time but i will say that if you really asked me to do tv i would do it i just am not looking with the same joy that I am towards other things that we cover on this podcast. Well, it's easier to beg forgiveness than uh, ask permission. <laughs> um, okay, good to know. Our guest today is a critic, filmmaker, and author of Cinemophagy on the psychedelic classical form of Toby Hooper. It's Scout DeFoya. How are you doing today, Scout? I'm doing magnificently. Thank you for having me back. Scout, you're so great. I, don't, I, I was going to come up with some other way to introduce <laughs> you, but obviously... I feel very strongly about that. Scout has been a guest of ours on Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. He's here today to talk about the career of Dick Miller. But before we do that, I want to talk to you just briefly about your book. Uh, one of the things I love about the fact that this book even exists is that I think that there's a common feeling in horror circles that the career of Toby Hooper, it has you know certain uh, peaks and valleys and throughout the uh, you know post- and, and, and pre, but post Texas Chainsaw Massacre into the 80s, into his kind of uh, canon films uh, heyday. But then in the 90s, his work just falls off a cliff. And it feels to me like you want to kind of push back on that, that consensus in the horror field. Would I be right on that? That is correct. That is indeed the impetus behind the entire project is I started watching his 90s movies and was uh, uh, enormously impressed by what I saw. These were films whose reputations I uh, discovered, you know, lurking around worst films of all times lists. Sure. And uh, just found, yeah, in general, that uh, for somebody who held such an esteemed spot in horror history because he directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he had been treated rather shabbily by the horror establishment. Um, You know, there's the whole Poltergeist fiasco where they tried to take that away from him. And then, of course, there's simply that every movie he made after Poltergeist was treated with less and less reverence and or respect. Um, And in general, you know, for all the years that I have been doing the unlove for RogerEbert.com, the most common thing that I kind of come up against is people essentially being unwilling to meet a film where it wants to be met. That people walk into a movie, and if it's not 21 Bridges by the Russos or whatever that is, then they don't want anything to do with it. It's, it's, there's, there is such a lack of imagination when it comes to the otter projects of directors that people will ostensibly cop to liking. Ridley Scott runs up against this all the time. You know, you can make Gladiator and uh, Blade Runner and, uh, you know, whatever, you know, pick your popular thing. And, uh, and yet when you make Alien Covenant, I think people run for the hills and they say you've lost your mind. But they'll be back for the next one because it might be Gladiator again. 
and I think that that was true with 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 Toby Hooper is that people loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it was that that kept them coming back to check out the projects and when they saw that what he was making wasn't Texas Chainsaw Massacre they uh, sneered they turned their noses up at them despite the fact that the through line throughout his entire career was not any of the particular subjects you know uh, that come up in something like Texas Chainsaw but rather a classical uh, form the way that he was using his camera People talk all the time, and in fact, people are still doing this in 2021, that the movie feels like a, uh, a documentary, to which I can only say, what other documentaries are able to lay down 30 feet of dolly track right, <laughs> to keep up with a subject that they weren't ostensibly aware of and in control of? There was this odd belief, and, and, and this was, uh, I, I had a friend named Tom Davies um, who uh, published a, a an interesting volume about Hollywood failure. And of course his pet uh, director was Orson Welles. And the more that he talked about the way that we treated Orson Welles, the more that I realized that we had done the same thing to Toby Hooper. In order to keep the myth alive of Citizen Kane being this sort of mythic, you know, supernova of a film, you have to then say that everything that he did afterwards is terrible in order to keep, you know, the sort of like all, all of this critical uh, uh, myth-making alive, you have to basically say that Lady from Shanghai and uh, Mr. Arkadin are not worth your time. And uh, that's just not true. Uh, they kept being excellent. If anything, they got better. Um, it was simply that the budgets kept shrinking. Um, but uh, I, you know, as much affection as I have for Texas Chainsaw and indeed for Citizen Kane, I would almost rather always watch the B-sides because ingenuity is at play. When you're making the mangler for... Harry, you know, <laughs> Harry Allen Towers' budget, uh, or Night Terrors, one of his best films, it is so much more interesting to see this uh, incredible skill set on display for less uh, money and trying to sort of paper over those things with just craft and brio and uh, charisma. And I just, uh, you know, I, I know that I'm uh, uh, decidedly in the minority on these things, but I, I would just much rather watch some, something like that, you know. Obviously, I would have loved it if they had just kept giving Toby Hooper you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars to spend on these things, but I'll take what I can get. And certainly when you have a skill set as pronounced and uh, and clever as his, you know, as I frequently uh, fawningly refer to him as the heir to Max Ophels uh, throughout the book, um, I I just, I, I can't get enough. I, I Every new thing I saw by him made me more uh, committed to the idea of resurrecting his uh, his reputation as much as I could. And, you know, thankfully... My book was the second, oh, sorry, the first one this year about the, on the subject of Toby Hooper. The other one was an academic anthology. And it just feels good to be sort of, you know, validated at least by a couple of other diehards and maybe we'll get a conversation going and we can sort of resurrect these things. The more people that uh, uh, read the book and watch these movies, I think, are, are more impressed by them than uh, they expect to be. For years also, something like Spontaneous Combustion was, was mm -hmm. you know, a true curate's egg and nobody would cop to liking that. But I think... Lately, there have been a handful of critics who have been watching it, you know, and uh, and seeing what a special film it is, um, which has been very heartening. You know, I think that in a lot of cases, it's just that people don't know to go look for these things because, again, the nays had it for so long and uh, we just have Absolutely. to wrest control from them. And uh, it becomes a, a weirder prospect in an era where most mainstream movies are terrible uh, <laughs> to continue to stump for older films that you, you essentially have to pirate to see. Um but, uh, you know, what else What else is there to do? <laughs> Scout, you are the champion of the downtrodden when it, came to, when it comes to films and filmmakers. And it's one of the things I most appreciate about your work. Uh, I, 
I have to say, one of the things that I read of yours that really just kind of blew my mind the first time I read it was uh, your article about Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, the Guy Ritchie film, a film that mm -hmm. you championed very, very strongly, and that I would not... It wasn't even on my radar. I never would have even considered. I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes guy. I'm, I'm, I usually I'm pretty obsessive about it. But I'm like, oh, this movie, this kind of thing is not for me. But your writing on it was what kind of got me to not only watch it but kind of fully appreciate it. And I think that that is the kind of power that you have in a lot of your work. And I hope that that uh, the same thing that you just mentioned occurs. Toby Hooper is a director that I have a lot of love and passion for, but I have not investigated a lot of his later films simply because their reputation sort of preceded them. And now I feel a little guilty about the fact that I let those, that kind of, of general uh, feeling that seemed to be in the air influence me and keep me away from a director that obviously I really like. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that I, you know, I, I certainly don't want anyone to feel badly because it was, I mean, you were, you were hardly alone in, in, in kind of turning away from those things. You really would have had to have uh, gone all out to, uh, to kind of keep up with his career because, again, they were made by disreputable people. They were, um, they were, they were not uh, uh, films that screamed uh, effective horror or, or even, you know, sort of uh, uh, respectable budgets. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that, especially because of the way that the cultural machine treated a lot of these people, and horror, despite getting respect from this or that corner of the critical establishment, I mean, obviously, somebody like John Carpenter was sort of taken seriously from day one, even if producers hated him. And right. Just did not want to give him more money to do things, which is why perhaps something like Escape from L.A. looks so slipshod at times. Um, you know, the... It, 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 it's tough to fight, you know, when Siskel and Ebert are every week talking about how, you know, uh, disgusting slasher films are, uh, you know, why not take them at your word, if, you know, and then so that, or at their word, rather, you know, that that thing takes over, that the, the, the broader critical consensus that these movies are not to be trusted unless, you know, somebody in high in a high place tells you to go watch them, and, and uh even even the, the the sort of attempts to resurrect horror for the mainstream and your in your scream and all that that quickly becomes you know uh, urban legend and Valentine which is not right. not to at all denigrate those movies but rather to say you know these the 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 horror genre enjoyed a moment in the spotlight and now it's back to you know disreputable knockoffs and sequels and things like that so it's okay to not take this seriously anymore and uh, and that happens to almost everything so there's a weird thing that happens with the commodification of horror that the more successful they are i think the easier it is for people to say oh you don't have to take this seriously because they have names like saw the final chapter <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, yeah no you were you were certainly not the only person who looked at the the you know the uh the extent of the toby hooper filmography and thought well there's no way this can be good there's no way this can be as interesting as texas chainsaw they have names like the mangler and crocodile and they're made for nothing. And and why haven't I heard of them? You know, where is their reputation if these films are as good as, as his uh, early work? Why does no one talk about them? And you know, that's that was that was what I was out to combat. And I I have to also say thank you so much for uh, of that incredibly kind thing that you said about my work. That's very very nice. I I really appreciate it. And I really have appreciated having you in my corner all these years. You've been an incredible uh, support and just a. Just a lovely guy to know, so thank you. Oh, what a nice thing to say. You know, a Scout, I have a Blu-ray of the film Mortuary here in my hand right now. Excellent. And I'm gonna, I've never watched it before, so tonight I'm going to watch it in celebration of you 
and your work. Liam O'Donnell, you've been a, a longtime a denigrator of the career of Toby Hooper. Untrue. Um, <laughs> you know uh, this is famously untrue because this is why I regularly get in that argument with my co-host on Horror Business, Justin Lohr, about right. Poltergeist. Right. You are like you are like Spielberg was not on the set. He was not there at all. I don't Had believe no Spielberg exists now. That's how far That's right. I am. He's a, he's a he's we all created him in our imaginations. He's not real. No. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you agreeing with me? I'm not sure what you're trying to say right No, now. I mean, I, I love Toby Hooper. I Similarly to what you said, I don't think I've given... Well, weirdly, I have seen The Mangler, but that's the only film discussed that I was even familiar with. Like right. some of the other movies that Scout brought up, I was like, oh, I don't even know what that is. Okay. Um, and, <laughs> and so, you know, I but I think this is maybe not true, but I think for a number of horror <laughs> fans you kind of get used to the idea of being a bad fan. Like I've definitely met people who say they love John Carpenter, but never attempted to watch anything like even past Prince of darkness. You know what I sure. mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think it's sometimes people really feel comfortable with the idea that like, Oh, I like this director's accepted movies and therefore I like this director, but you know, uh, have they, you know, have they, uh, really explored Wes Craven's non-Nightmare on Elm Street movies? Well, a lot of times, no. You know, a lot of times they're like, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, and, and then I'm good. And I'm like, okay, I mean, that's fine, I guess, but there are other movies that he made, right? You don't really like Wes Craven, do you? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, I also have friends who are like, I've also watched the porns, and I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, you're really into it. I got you. So it's, you know, everyone has their own vibe. But like for me with Toby Hooper, I appreciate Toby Hooper but I've never really pushed myself as a huge fan, although I do find the idea that like he couldn't possibly have directed Poltergeist to be like this insane thing that doesn't make any sense to me, but whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. again, it's it becomes easier to do that when those opinions are laundered by the cultural industry. Yeah. Um, and because it's easier to have a hook. I mean, especially in the 80s, it was, you know, that was, was the era of... Uh, uh, devil's candy and things like i mean obviously that was the tail end of the 80s but regardless the tell all the hollywood behind the scenes book all yeah. that stuff you know pauline kale was at her catty worst during this period and it was it it, it was it was a hooky thing to do and it and it uh, increased readership and and uh, you know thank god of course this had no ramifications on our current climate of journalism and everybody <laughs> is uh, at their best today at all times and there isn't a uh, industry run on hate clicks Thank God we pulled up from that course because it really would have been ugly for all of us. We would have uh, been denied a fully functioning uh, artistic uh, critical wing. That would have just been terrible. Um, but uh, no, it's true. I did. You know, there's 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 a part of me that has to admit that I've been a completionist my entire life. I still have a document on my uh, computer that has now been ported over from four laptops as they've all broken that has my list of films by the directors that I like so that I can make sure that I've seen everything called right. from, you know, original IMDb profiles that have had to been updated over the years. And so I understand that I am uh, not, again, you know, I did something like the Lorax for, uh, for forgotten movies that nobody else does this and nobody else cares, but it does seem sort of paltry to go around saying that you like Toby Hooper if you haven't uh, seen and found things to like about uh, the likes of, uh, I'm dangerous tonight, or spontaneous combustion, or the mangler, or uh, you know, uh, the damned thing, or Jin. In fact, his uh, terrific final film. Um, it's, I love it. I love that. I love that you're throwing out the titles 
for Absolutely. people listening who, who again, <laughs> I've heard a lot of these names before. I've seen a few of those films and probably were not paying the level of attention that they deserved. But I, I just love the idea that this is an opportunity. We're not just talking about like a single film at the end of his career. I mean, we're talking about literally a decade plus worth of films that have been, like I said, denigrated and, and uh, ignored and from a filmmaker that generally is still championed even among horror circles and, and in some cases outside of horror circles. So very interesting uh, subject matter. And uh, I'm really glad that, that you're out there kind of, of uh, clanging the bell for Toby Hooper, a name that, that I think really does deserve a rediscovery. Uh, thank you very much. I agree. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, I don't have that much pull or clout as a journalist, so I figured that what little I had was best spent in the service of uh, uh, of people who who could really use the push back towards the spotlight. I mean, it's a little late now, of course. He passed away, unfortunately, in uh, in 2017. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I just uh, I, I I think that he is worth all the accolade and uh, and uh, everything you know, all the all the plaudits. And I, I certainly think that basically the least that we could do for him after having shunted him aside uh, uh, rather decisively is give some of these films a, a second look. You know, there's no, there's no, I, 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 I don't need everyone to agree with me in every way when I talk about these films and how great they are. I don't need everyone to see what I see, but I did kind of want to give people a guide to these things. But if looking at them and they only see a cheap horror film, then perhaps, you know, they could uh, take a glance at one of these chapters and, and maybe see a little more, you know, that's, that's that's kind of all, all I can do is that you know with the unloved and with the book and with most of what I write you know sort of in the positive about historical work, it's 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 about sort of trying to help people procure the tools with which they might you know sort of uh, uh, you know it's 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 about trying to give people the they live glasses and uh, <laughs> you know the rest is up to you but I do you know it's 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 I I do feel like that's sort of what we're here for it's not you know in a most I. I think it was Jonathan Rosenbaum, but I m might be wrong about this, who said that the, the uh, an opinion is the least interesting thing that a critic can uh, vouchsafe. That, you know, more than that, you should be giving people uh, a fuller experience and a, and a glimpse into something else that you might not otherwise have seen. Well, listeners, you may be mistaken in thinking that this is a podcast about Toby Hooper, which sounds like a really good idea, by the way. Maybe someone <laughs> yeah. listening right now should, <laughs> should go out and do that. But we are actually here to talk about the wonderful character actor, Dick Miller. Now, I uh, I'm I can't expect Scout that you have as much insight into the career of Dick Miller as you do of the career of Toby Hooper, but I'm certainly expecting that it is a name that you are familiar with. Dick Miller is one of those people who I mean, thankfully, I was I was raised by a film fanatic, um, right? And so, growing up, uh, every time we were watching a movie with Dick Miller in it, of course, my dad would make a point to say. There's Dick Miller. Wow. And it was just one of those faces that because, of course, his physiognomy was so memorable, you don't <laughs> uh, you don't forget that you've seen him. Um, but also he was a, he was one of those people who was a, a sort of a, a good luck charm for uh, a lot of our best directors. And so it was uh, it was fun to see him. I think probably maybe the first thing I saw him in was The Howling. Um, right. And what a wonderful job he does in that. Um, and it just sort of put me on guard to keep looking for him everywhere. Um, you know, my dad was a... Uh, uh, casual Joe Dante fan, so a lot of those movies were on in our house. We watched, of course, Piranha on VHS and uh, things like that. And 
And so I, you know, I, I, I know what little there is to know about him from the, you know, the, the, the point of view of a casual fan, if perhaps a lifelong casual fan. But I saw the documentary, that guy, Dick Miller, and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I just, I, I think he's one of those people who represents a better bygone era of uh, sort of collectively uh, 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 aimed genre filmmaking. And also he represents this sort of feeling of getting away with something, which is how I think a lot of horror used to be, that when you're Joe Dante or James Cameron or whomever, you know, you, you, uh, you're sneaking things by your producers and all that. And Dick Miller kind of represented that to me, is that if you were making a movie where you were really getting away with something, you would hire Dick Miller. This is something we're going to talk about a little when it comes to Night of the Creeps, but in the 1980s in particular, and, and kind of stretching into the 1990s, it seems that often a Dick Miller performance or appearance in your film was almost like a secret code that you are sharing with the exactly. audience. exactly. Absolutely. Where, where they, when he appears, there's an, a recognition amongst a certain section of your audience that's like, I, not only do I know who that is, I know what his connection is to film history and, and genre history in particular, and that by having him here, it's like this kind of wink, this nod that's saying, okay, we're on the same page here. We know what we're doing here. But I also like that there's a certain segment of the audience that's just like, oh, he is just an actor. Hey, I think I've seen him in things before, but that other kind of level of connection doesn't necessarily exist. Scout, do you have any favorite Dick Miller appearances? I mean, The Howling is still the one for me. I mean, I love Absolutely. him in this. You know, this is obviously a nod to his Terminator appearance, which is also mm -hmm. great. But uh, I love him in uh, um, Matinee. I, <laughs> him showing up as the, uh, as the patsy in that is always fantastic. Um, I like his seconds-long, very miserable cameo in the whole the Joe Dante film as well. Um, I like, I like, I'm, you know, mostly I think I like him best in the Joe Dante stuff because Joe, I think, understood him perhaps better than most of the other people who hired him. Um, I like that, you know, he uh, in in this movie in Night of the Creeps, he plays a, a character named Walt, and which he did uh, throughout his entire career because I guess. In Hollywood Boulevard, his name was Walter Paisley, and so there are people who. Oh no, it was. No, it's back to a bucket of it's blood. It's back yeah, to a bucket of blood. That's where I got roll. Bucket of blood. Great yeah. movie. That's a great. That's a great performance too. But I like him. I like him a little better in, in old man mode. Um, I like when he's got uh, the lines in the forehead, um, and uh, I think that that sort of captures his essence a little better. There are some people that you had to wait until they got older to really get their their full, uh, their full personage. And I think that uh, Dick Miller is, is a shining example of this. But uh, I, yeah, I think that his scene in The Howling is just the essence of Dick Miller to me, where he's, you know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's being honest about how little he believes in any of the stuff that he's selling to rubes in, uh, in Hollywood, who are at that point, you know, in the thick of uh, uh, tarot card fever and all that nonsense. <laughs> while still running a shop that caters to that exact thing yeah, that's exactly absolutely. right that's that's like that's the quintessential dick miller thing because it's he's doing something and it pays his bills but he hates it he doesn't respect anyone who comes by and he's a complete you know huckster that's like you know trapped forever by something he does does not respect is is, is you know dick dick miller a one-man samuel beckett play <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on our podcast here, You Don't Know Dick, we've been covering a, a lot of his larger roles, most of which, of course, have some connection with Joe Dante in, in recent episodes. Though I have to say, his appearance here in Night of the Creeps, very brief, and like you said, very reflective of his short, though very memorable, appearance in The Terminator. But this is really kind of 
emblematic of a lot of the roles that we will see Dick Miller in, where he's in a single scene or just a collection of short scenes, but still manages to make a pretty significant impact, even outside of that kind of handshake, that secret handshake that we're making with the audience. And with that in mind, I think it's time for us to take our first break. When we return, we're going to be talking about Dick Miller and his performance in Fred Decker's Night of the Creeps. Hi, Walt. Well, 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 Detective Ray Cameron, son of a gun, is that really you? Yeah, it's me, all right, Walt. How's about you? Hey, can't complain. Cannot complain, Raymond. Hiya, Split. That's a pretty fancy set of duds you got on there. What is it, Halloween or something, right? Did I miss something? Hey, kid, I'm only kidding. So, what can I do you for? Well, the thing is, uh, Walter, what I need is... I need your basic flamethrower. Flamethrower? <laughs> flamethrower? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> flamethrower? Jesus. What's the matter? The old snub nose ain't good enough for you anymore? Uh, I know. I know. Just break out the old heavy artillery, will you, Walt? One shot, one BB gun, and one flamethrower. There you go. Uh, by the way, you gotta watch out for this baby. Once you light the pilot, it goes out, and it plays hard to get like a son of a bitch. Thanks. So, uh, you just let me have the requisition. Oh, well. <laughs> the thing is, uh, the thing is, Walter, I, um, I don't have a requisition form, is the thing. Uh, you don't. Well, uh, geez, to tell you the truth, Ray, that could be a little problem. Yeah. It could be a little problem. Alien brain parasites entering humans through the mouth turn their host into a killing zombie. Some teenagers start to fight against them. It's 1986's Night of the Creeps, directed by Fred Decker, who we've already been talking about, the director of The Monster Squad, a very formative film for myself, which I'm sure we're going to bring up before we're finished here, as well as Robocop 3, also written by Fred Decker. Uh, and as we mentioned before as well, uh, he had kind of a, a lifelong writing collaboration with Shane Black, the writer of Lethal Weapon uh, and Last Boy Scout, as, and continuing into his uh, recent directorial efforts like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and... Uh, the Nice Guys as well. Uh, and recently, of course, The Predator, which we talked about in the first segment. Uh, Fred Decker as well wrote uh, on his own If Looks Could Kill, the Richard Grieco spy comedy, as well as Ricochet, and five different episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, this is a film that I have a lot of affinity for, though it is one that I did not catch up with when I was kind of a horror fanatic as a kid. I'm very familiar with the box art for it. It was a film that its reputation really certainly has seemed to have grown over the past 20 years or so. But as I mentioned, The Monster Squad, my brothers and I, we watched that over and over again when we were a kid. I think I've said in other podcasts before that when I was a kid renting movies from the video store, I didn't have a sense of what had a low or high budget or was movies that were critically beloved or critically hated. A lot of times we were just purchasing or, or renting them based on the box art. So you picked up a movie like Crawl or uh, Charles Band's Eliminators, and those movies were, uh, you know, we watched those over and over just like we watched The Goonies or E.T. They were all on the exact same level in the brains of my brothers and I, and we watched them again and again. And for us, The Monster Squad was a film like that. We even uh, created our own, own little monster uh, gang uh, in, our, in our hometown back in Newfoundland. A little embarrassing now that I, I think about it. But, uh, we're, but we're not here to talk about The Monster Squad, though we could be. 
We're here to talk about Night of the Creeps. Uh, stars uh, Jason Lively, probably best known from uh, the uh, National Lampoon's Vacation uh, film. Uh, he played one of the Rusties, I believe. <laughs> and of course, we have Tom Atkins uh, making a very memorable appearance here. And, uh, and we'll talk about the movie and its cast in just a little bit. But let's start with some general thoughts. We'll start with our guest, Scout. What do you think of Night of the Creeps? I like Night of the Creeps. It's, um, you know, it's a little rusty uh, when viewed. Ah, uh, rusty again. Sorry. <laughs> Tip your waitress. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's, we'll say it's uh, Night of the Creeks. Hello. Um, it's a slightly <laughs> creaky film. Uh, but uh, no, I've always, uh, I've always enjoyed it. I, I, I saw Night of the Creeps um, in, in high school uh, when I was, you know, sort of newly obsessed with zombie films. The, mm -hmm. I've, I've gone on record elsewhere. The first film that like really kind of obsessed me was, uh, well, actually there were two. There were Aliens, which this movie is uh, sort of indebted to as well because mm -hmm. of the James Cameron stuff. Um, and then Dawn of the Dead. And so I was obsessed with zombie films, and in high school I tracked down basically all of the ones that there were to see, including outliers like, uh, what is it, Dawn of the Mummy from uh, 1984, <laughs> the Egyptian zombie film. Uh, nobody's favorite film. But uh, it was, you know, so I... Extremely I, violent, though. I mean, it does uh, yeah, have violence on its side. Certainly <laughs> violent. Uh, and, uh, and so I saw this and thought it was a sort of a more lively uh, 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 version of the zombie film that I was seeing elsewhere, especially when you compare it to the uh, more hallucinogenic uh, and deliberately paced likes of The Beyond or something like that. Mm. It seems so fun, you know, and it's got that sort of new wave energy and... Of course, when you're a teenager, you find it clever that all the characters are named after horror directors, and now you're just sort of grown every time a new character is introduced. Um, but that's you know sort of speaks to the youthful uh, energy of somebody like Fred Decker, whose career was really just sort of uh, starting at the time. Uh, but uh, I think it holds up uh, uh, quite nicely. You know, all the kind of old school horror references. I like the prologue quite a bit, shot in black and white. Um, you know, he's got. Uh, uh, a decent composition sense, as we said before, and it's just, you know, I I think the one thing that, that maybe made me feel a little weird now is because the cultural bead on the kind of uh, uh, downtrodden nerd hero has so shifted yes. that I didn't really want him to be happy anymore. Uh -huh. uh, when I was a teenager, I rooted for him, but today I was like, is it a little weird that he's a guy who just sort of, he's doing that nice guy shit to try and get the girl, and the only reason that she kind of eventually has to go for him is because her her own actual you know uh boyfriend with confidence is uh has his head fucking exploded um and uh yeah i thought that was i i i found that an interesting change in myself that i no longer rooted for these heroes <laughs> their kind of nerdlinger ways were no longer as ingratiating to me as they were when i saw it when i was 16. this this kind of teenage sense of love that is supposed to be so powerful that uh, it doesn't matter. Like, obviously, he really just wants to have sex with Cynthia Cronenberg in this movie. That is Absolutely. his main goal. There's even a part where they're out walking, and yeah. she's like scared, right? She's had a traumatic experience, and she hugs him for a second, and he makes this uh, this this face to his friend JC, played by Steve Marshall in the film, like, oh wow, like it's working. It's like she's scared, man. Yeah, <laughs> you're supposed no. to be helping out here there was yeah that was i think that 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 version of the nice guy i think was 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 rightly consigned to the rubbish heap of history um because as as you know that becomes more of a trope the you know the less uh, uh authentic it all seems but yeah i mean that's 
to, to Fred Decker's credit, that absolutely probably would have been how those guys uh, reacted to uh, <laughs> a, you know a woman touching them consensually for the first time. Um, but uh, it did feel a little gross. It felt a little gross. That's I, I think the Monster Squad holds up better than Night of the Creeps for that reason because at least that has a sort of a more honest bead on what the you know like kids who are obsessed with monster stuff were actually like and there's less of a sense although there is some uncomfortable stuff yes. about the one girl being a virgin in monster <laughs> squad there's also a few homophobic slurs thrown around in that script that uh... no that's true but at least those guys are the villains right <laughs> i i don't know yeah i mean there there are some aspects look we we could speak all day about some of the particularly dated aspects of a lot of these 80s movies but it does jump out when you're watching this film that these two lead characters these lovable losers are actually not that not not that lovable really, yeah, not only not that lovable but are hard to distinguish in terms of their motivations from the frat guys who were supposed to hate and actually are killed off for comedic effect in the film exactly yeah <laughs> liam o'donnell uh oh sorry yes no, I was gonna killed in a bus accident. That's which is funny in the movie, but also in hindsight, you're like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> they all have parents and families. We I don't know if say. they're all jerks. Yeah, we don't know any of them. I'm so I'm sorry. Uh, there's just a certain level of '80s white that you couldn't look like and me accept that you're a good person. So all of those <laughs> well, frat guys enough, had enough. to die. I don't even know how they found that level of toxically white. Like those people lived near Hollywood. Like I assumed like they had to fly them in from less populated parts of the United States. Like these are the worst looking people. Like li literally like if, if you met anyone now who looked like these dudes look, you'd be like, were you like grown in a vat that just said 80s villain on the side like i i can't imagine there was any one frat house that had that many awful looking people in it just they just look like they get joy from the suffering of brown people like that's what they live off oh. of <laughs> you, you are reading a lot into it though i can't necessarily disagree with you i don't know that that monobrowed unibrowed guy he seemed like he was a nice enough guy what? get the <laughs> fuck out of here what are you talking about <laughs> the moment you see him it's like oh god i hope he chokes on something what's going on no 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 everyone in that frat is is terrible i mean i will okay i will say this that like if you read this for me right uh, i've never read the main dude right as a good dude in fact my feeling was always that he kind of grows into a better dude when he's forced to like finally do something decisive and that right. I, I'm never supposed to think well of him because he takes advantage of his friend who is differently abled, you know? And, and it's pretty clear to me that if his friend wasn't around, this guy wouldn't be able to get through life. And I think I'm supposed to think he's a fucking loser from the first moment. But I also think all of these frat dudes just scream like, like if if they were only date rapists, that would be better than than the vibe they're giving me. Like I, I assume that they've run over small animals as well and done all. Like wow. they just are the worst <laughs> people I've seen in a movie in a long time. The part where he first of all kicks over the 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 guy, kicks the guy's uh, crotch, and like just laughs and thinks it's so funny. And then he reaches out. The dude who hands him his sunglasses on sight. <laughs> if I saw that man walking down the street, even now as an older man i would just attack him unmercifully just just on principle i just see him and be like you must die and just jump on him um no Liam, so I, Liam, sorry i'm gonna have to interrupt you because i haven't yeah. yet asked you your thoughts on night of the cream oh it's it's it is if uh, let me let me let me put it this way please i think there is the horror fan 
for whom horror is at its best when it's at a certain tone, um, sure. a certain mm-hmm. kind of seriousness, uh, that person would hate this movie. Like this yes. movie is the tongue is there. There is no cheek left. Your tongue has burst through the cheek. It is so <laughs> like goofy, but for me, I'm in the whole time. I think it helps with some of the I think you guys are right that if if you take this main character too seriously as a guy you're supposed to be identifying with, it's really gross, right? Because he is again, he's he, the only reason I read him as slightly better than the than the frat dude is that he's he's you know, I don't think he's ever been cruel to people on purpose for funsies, but it's unclear in the movie if that's because he's like any sort of good person or he's just would be too scared to be cruel to anyone, even for funsies. You know what I mean? Like he just everything about the character is like just smarmy, just like self-interested and whatever. But uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you here, Liam, but there is one exception to that, which is yes. and, and it's one of the unique things about this film is that his relationship with his right. friend JC, right? It there's, it goes further than a lot of these '80s films yes. would in terms of that friendship. They talk but I think about it's loving each codep- other, and- but I think it's codependent a little bit. Sure, I think I think that until he hears that, I it, this is my reading on the movie, having watched it a bunch of times, and people can disagree. That's fine. I'm not like wedded to it, but my feeling on it is hearing his friend and and the the way that his friend is both suffering but also choosing to be away from people as, as like, like a self, like I'm infected and I'm hiding away and you sure. know, whatever, and leaving this thing for his friend. Um, I think that pushes him into a different place. Like, I think there's an arc there. The movie doesn't spend a lot of time in it. This is not a character movie. This no. is, you know what I mean? They, they want you to, to feel something has changed for this character because he is kind of a, a dingle at the beginning, but you know, they don't spend a lot of time being like, now let's show how great he is. Now we got to spend a lot of time with the alien slugs. We got to spend some time <laughs> with the fucking alien slugs. So we can't spend too much time really proving that this dude has, he's at least less gross than the beginning of the movie. I don't know if I would say he's heroic now, but he might be heroic by the end of the film. A small level of maturity at the yeah, very least. At, at the very least, you know what I mean? And we also, let's be clear, are getting Tom Atkins, you know, Tom Atkins is dealing with a lot of his own trauma and by the end, you know, sure he uh chooses death, but it's like, you know, for a purpose. So, I don't know. I I I'm actually kind of surprised because the movie is such a goofball, goofy thing, that sure. there is actually some movement to some of these characters in a way that I find, you know, interesting. You know, it's not it's not like deep, but it is uh it, it's not insignificant. When Tom Atkins is tearing down the tape on his door and you realize that what his intentions were was to kill himself in his apartment, it it's it does have a certain level of weight that's kind of surprising for a movie that has, you know, those ridiculous aliens at the beginning and lots of kind of jokey uh, nods to to the history of, of film. I'm going to stick with you for a second, Liam. Uh, Scott has already mentioned this a little bit. All the characters in this film, they have last names that are uh, references to famous horror directors, including uh, the JC, his last name. His name, in fact, is James Carpenter Hooper. You got a two and one on his <laughs> name. Uh, and the lead character, Chris Romero. I mean, even if you hadn't figured this out, as soon as the uh, the female lead uh, announces her name as Cynthia Cronenberg, you probably can figure out what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's other directors, Sam Raimi, John Landis, uh, even Wes Craven and Mario Bava get- uh, Sorry? Louis Teague as well. And that's Tom right, Lee absolutely. 
so there's there's certainly an array of names here. This was not as common in the 1980s. Uh, this is another thing that was done in J.R. Bookwalter's The Dead Next Door. All the characters have last names of a similar uh, kind of model. But it's since then, it's become a little bit of a cliche, particularly in low-budget horror comedies, to do this sort of thing. When you hear these names in the film at this point, Liam, in the year 2021, uh, does it still give you, do you still feel kind of an affection for it or has it been played out to the point where it, you kind of groan at it? I 100% feel an affection for it, but that is mm. entirely because I associate it with this movie. So right. it's like, you know, that like it's kind of like a music cliche, right? Like that certain things become corny, but the first time you hear it and you associate it with that as sort of like a pioneer, it might have an endearing thing because of that. So like, yeah, it's it's a goofball thing to do now, but at the time, like, it, it was silly, but it was, you know, it, it, there wasn't a ton of people who had done it at that point. So it still makes me laugh a little bit. Does it make me laugh probably the way it did when this movie played? Like, you know what I mean? Like, if you were the audience in the theater, you're probably like, oh, okay, all right. But even then, it couldn't have been that funny right it was always a bit of like a hey, hey that it was I, like I something actually funny funny i think it's it's like it's partly a joke but it's partly you know kind of an extension of that that secret handshake idea right that sure that sure. the people in the know they know what this is all about and that we're part of this club that we can see this and you can't see it uh it's just you know at, at this point <laughs> there's very few people who are watching a movie called night of the creeps that are going to miss out on this right uh, Scout, I'm going to ask you this, the same thing. You've already mentioned it before. Uh, it, it is something, I mean, I think it's clear that, it, that this sort of thing is played out, but there's also, you know, a dozen low-budget horror comedies that come out per, per year. This movie doesn't just have the last names. It also has the thing where a character in the movie refers to the movie as being like a B-movie, uh, yeah. which, again, not something you see in every 80s horror movie, but uh, I watch a lot of shot-on-video films from the 1990s, and every single one of them has a character I was like... Say this yeah. is like a bad B, B movie uh is it something that still works for you uh no i will say especially now I, I credit where credit is due i think fred decker was you know smarter than a lot of the people who were making these movies at face value and sure. he saw that a move towards postmodern modernism was the way forward it was the way to make sure that your films didn't grow stale and that you weren't simply making the same film that somebody else made so there's an element of both parody and satire at work here but there's also the loving thing where they clearly like all of these movies because otherwise they wouldn't be taking the time to sort of name drop everyone who had ever made one of them. Um, <laughs> and I think that basically that kind of stuff works only as an as an in joke for other people who are you know of the of the tribe. But at the same time, those people will know anyway. They're gonna see what you're doing. You're making again, like you're saying, you're making a movie called Night of the Creeps. There's a, they're not gonna miss <laughs> that you're paying homage to other zombie films or whatever. It's it's. And I think too that you know, Monster Squad is 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 much the same in its affection for these things, but it is more confidently itself because again, Decker was an incredible stylist visually, and so he was able to make a movie that looked at once like a very idyllic suburban, you know, like The Goonies or something like that, you know, sure. an Amblin film. But it still has all this beautiful lighting and production design that mm -hmm. occasionally, when needed, it can become what feels like a very like a like almost like a Hammer film. You know these kind of secondhand Universal monster movies, um, and I think that the more that he leaned into that stuff, the better he got. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we only have one other movie in the whole Fred Decker canon to compare it to, which is a bit of a bummer because he did seem to be just hitting his stride when he made RoboCop Three. But I guess back then they just put you into director jail for those things and they wouldn't let you out again. But 
uh, I think Night of the Creeps is still a, a pretty impressive feat of direction and an interesting sort of, uh, you know, tone juggling exercise where it is, on the one hand, pretty funny, on the other hand, fairly ribald, and then also uh, shockingly dark and violent at times, and all this in, what, 90 minutes. Uh, pretty strong stuff for a debut. Yeah, absolutely. It does feel like a film that was constructed from both Fred Decker's interests, but also the things that were of interest to audiences at that time, right? I mean, even though zombie movies weren't huge uh, at that point in the mid-'80s, but the idea, I think he even said in some of the... Um, uh, behind the scenes uh, info that's out there that like he was constructing it he had the idea of this this cop first then he had the teens because teen comedies and then he had the aliens because aliens were very big and he, he's like piecing them all together and I think there's an element of that in the monster squad as well which is pairing his love of monster movies with the you know the the teens getting together and going on an adventure that was in in of course the Goonies but in some other films that were kind of centered around kids at that time as well do you have as much affection or any affection it sounds like you do for the monster squad uh, I do. I love The Monster Squad. I think that that's the stronger of the two films from a sort of, uh, you know, uh, directorial standpoint and from a craft sure. standpoint as well. Night of the Creeps, despite um, a couple of really beautiful uh, sequences and compositions and stuff, it's a movie that really does feel every bit of its low budget. I mean, like, yes. you know, Tom Atkins shows up to crime scenes in a fucking Hawaiian shirt, which I'm sure... <laughs> You know, they thought was like, oh, it's because he's a mess. But also, they wouldn't just let him walk onto a goddamn crime scene looking like he had just come from a fucking three-day bender. Like, it's just... The coroner, you know, I know that this is just a joke, but the the the, uh, the forensics guy who shows up to every crime scene with something to eat is... Yeah. Like, just, uh, that, it still kills me. I yeah. know it's just a little touch, but boy, a great, no, a great moment that I feel like has been referenced in lesser movies ever since then. Oh, absolutely. You know, and there's certainly a, a, a quality to it where on the one hand they're writing sort of a, you know, they're, they're obviously writing a comedy. And by casting, as you said, one of the Rusties, there is the sort of National Lampoon's aspect of it in the background, which was a very popular school of comedic film at the time and so would not have escaped someone like Decker's notice. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, 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 it, 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 it's a very cautious film in that regard because it can sort of play off any one of its, uh, uh, you know, shortcomings as part of the point where, you know, maybe a horror film wouldn't do this, but a comedy would. Maybe a comedy wouldn't do that, but a horror film would. Monster Squad, I feel like, is a more complete version of that idea, where on the one hand, it has to be the kind of fake Amblin movie, but it's also this very loving, pretty straightforward tribute to horror cinema. Um, and it's uh, it's quite shocking. I mean, basically, it's, it's Super 8 and Stranger Things, but from the vantage point of still being in the decade that spawned those things <laughs> and having a much more careful and considered attitude towards everything. And also just much better craft. Uh, you know, there's a lovely scene in Monster Squad where the, 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 the lead boy is sitting on his roof. Uh, I think he's hearing a concert uh, from, you know, miles away. And his dad joins him on the roof and they're sitting in front of the most beautiful matte painting of, you know, the valley that you've ever seen. And that was the kind of thing that you used to be able to take for granted in these movies. And now you watch Stranger sure. Things and it's just one hideous, disgusting, neon, digital, murky <laughs> image after another filled with the most cloying, cutesy, bullshit, straight guy writing of all time. It just doesn't feel quite as magical as it once did. And uh, you have to also give it, you know, once again, you got to give it up to Fred Decker and Shane Black recognizing that they were living through this period of 50s nostalgia and basically turning it inward that they were kind of, you know, I don't, I don't even know how you describe this. It's like, you know, pointing a mirror at another mirror where 
you're using 50s nostalgia without going back into the 50s and you're painting the 80s with the kind of, you know, overly lit, beautifully, you know, kind of uh, beer commercial lighting version of suburbia. And right. you're also pitting that against this, you know, kind of grim 50s uh, horror thing, but it all takes place in the 80s. It's, I... I, I'm very, very touched by that movie, and I'm, you know, still impressed by all the many things that Black and Decker pull off in the Monster Squad. I think it's wonderful. It was the kind of film that I wish I had seen when I was, you know, eight or nine years old. I was, I was still watching the, the insanely violent likes of the Terminator and True Lies <laughs> when I was younger, um, and missed out on that, which is, uh, in, in hindsight, a real bummer because it, it seems like the like a perfect film to see when you're, you know, when you're eight or nine. I mean, it certainly was for, as I mentioned, for me and my yeah. my brothers at that time period. By the way, that scene that you were mentioning, he's on the roof watching a drive-in film. That's what it is. With a pair of binoculars, which for me, again, when I was a kid, I was like, that's the dream. He can watch any movie he wants. For, you know, he had to look through a pair of goddamn binoculars. But still, <laughs> but, still uh, but still the dream all the same. Um, Liam, uh, did you grow up with The Monster Squad? Is that a film that you have much affection for? Oh yeah, I definitely did grow up with it. Um, it was part of my conviction that the Universal monsters, as I understood them, which was a limited, you know, capacity, sure, were absolutely. were that Universal hadn't chosen these monsters to then canonize that these monsters were written into the fabric of the universe, and that these films had just were just you know depicting these these essential sort of almost like uh, 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 elemental figures of horror that just existed in the world. And so then when I saw Monster Squad, I was like, see, they get it. They know. These are the monsters. Like, these are the monsters. Like, as, <laughs> as, as much like the pantheon of, of Greek gods, these are the monsters. And, uh, and, and I really felt that way until, like, probably, like, high school, honestly, uh, which is, you know, maybe embarrassing, but it's it's just where, where I was. And so, yeah, I saw that pretty young, grew up with it. Um, I think, like a lot of people, um, I, I've lost affection with aspects of the movie, uh, not the least of which, like, poof. A lot of a lot of hard f in that movie. I'm not. Yeah. It's it's Certainly. It's, it's a lot of hard f, and and I don't love the the conversation about uh, the the you know needing a virgin specifically. Um, <laughs> that, that, that that nowadays I'm like, oh come on. Uh, but otherwise, it holds up a lot. I think um, I think I have similar affection for night of the creeps though even though i don't have uh the same nostalgia because i really rediscovered it in in college um because i feel like for what i want from it night of the creeps is like giving me exactly what i want it, it like really is hitting all the notes i needed to uh but i also hold monster squad on a different level because i grew up with it so it's like one of the movies i've watched so many times that I don't know. I, I find myself watching it as an adult and quoting it sub, like unconsciously. Like my mm. mouth is moving. And I didn't <laughs> realize it was moving. You know what I mean? Um, uh, same with other movies that I think are a real problem. Like uh, The Goonies or uh, uh, super embarrassingly The Golden Child. Movies sure, like certainly. those. Sure. That I just by, watched. Uh, by the great Michael Ritchie. Yeah, I watched <laughs> so many fucking times that I just, you know... Like, uh, my mouth just moves at certain parts because I remember it so well. Uh, so to me, 
that puts the Monster Squad on a level. And and I will be fair of of many of the movies that I watched, probably the only two that haven't been knocked off their pedestals are Monster Squad and Big Trouble in Little China. Those are probably the only two that I'm still totally on board with since I was a kid. But it, it just has a lot more to live up to. Whereas Night of the Creeps just has to be a weird, fun movie for me. You know what I mean? Sure. I just I don't have yeah. the same. It doesn't have the weight of that. Yeah, kind of I don't have the rose colored yeah. glasses. I can't fucking well parts of it I can quote, but most of it I can't quote like that. You know, there are still times when I watch it and little things surprise me because I didn't notice them the last time I saw it. So you know what I mean? It, 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 it's hard to compare them except for the fact that it's both Fred Decker. You know, outside yeah. of that, I wouldn't even think of them in the same class. But that's because of the the love that I developed for Monster Squad over time. I do like the dialogue in the Monster Squad a lot more than I do in this film. Uh, some of it is a little... Like, I know that there's a lot that is kind of self-consciously corny from the thrill yeah. to some of Tom Atkins' lines. I just feel like some of the teen dialogue in it, it just seems a little off in a way. Maybe not as clever as it thinks it is. Or maybe, again, it's just that certain elements have aged with the hindsight of, of you know, 40 years of, of terrible horror comedies. I want to talk about Tom Atkins for a second. I'm going to stick with you, Liam. I have to be honest. I'm a little embarrassed to say this as well. I never really recognized Tom Atkins as being the center of a um, of a lot of horror classics when I was getting into the genre in the early 1990s, late 80s, early 90s. And and like I I, I certainly you know I'd seen The Fog. I recognized that him from that. I'm sure I saw him in a series of other films. But it's weird that in in Maybe it's just in, from my perspective because I wasn't kind of of rating him on that level. That in the last like twenty years, fifteen years or so, he's become very much established as one of those faces that appeared in a lot of these horror films of the uh, late seventies, early eighties. That has become kind of iconic because of it. And this is a performance that might be his most iconic. Um, what do you think of Tom Atkins in Night of the Creeps? I mean, he's great. I actually. Um... I actually prefer some of his more human performances. Certainly. I think absolutely. I think there are people who just think he's this angry angry mustache man or in some cases such as uh uh Barbara Crampton in, in a conversation when I was driving her around uh, as the sexy mustache man. A lot of people, <laughs> even at this age, thought of him as incredibly sexy. Uh yeah, I, I I appreciate that, and I and I think this is a very fun performance, and it's one of the reasons I love this movie. I still prefer the ones where he's a little bit more of an actual human being uh, to this, uh, because because I, I think that I think we I think when I hear people talk about him, they low rate that you know even though there is something kind of caricatured about both. Let's take just like season of the witch or the fog. That guy's a, there's a little bit of a of a larger than life aspect to both of those characters, sure. but they're still mostly human. They're mostly real people, uh, and I like that more than this, honestly, because I think it shows more respect for his uh, ability as an actor. Uh, but that doesn't mean this isn't entirely fun. And his, uh, his him going from kind of funny to super sad in this movie like right. actually really fucking works for me like it, it really does and and to be fair like i think you know the caricature of the hard-boiled cop that he's sort of performing here right, right, i right. assume any of those dudes at any moment could tape themselves into their apartment and turn on the gas <laughs> like i really do think that's the case and and, and even in real life if, if someone out there is like well, what about my uncle he's a hard-boiled detective yeah that dude thinks about turning on the gas every fucking day so just like keep that in mind all right that's 
that's just that's a real that's the most real aspect of the performance honestly is the part where he's like well i'm done <laughs> time to go uh but i also think he 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 in this movie uh he brings something to uh that sort of final fight that is needed because like i like I like our main guy. I like I like that the them sort of fighting together as a couple is cool, but I really need Atkins in there to like add a little extra spice cuz I don't think it would be as compelling with just them. This movie is interestingly structured in that it feels like there are a lot of scenes that are not necessarily necessary, but that would bridge certain sequences, like the teenagers being brought into the uh interrogation room. And uh, later when, when Rusty <laughs> goes to visit Tom Atkins and he's like telling him the whole story right after, you know, it's revealed that he's trying to kill himself. It feels like there's exposition scenes that are all kind of being delivered very quickly just to bridge to the next more interesting part of the movie. But there, it doesn't have a lot of the kind of waiting around that a lot of the films at this time period had. And I do think that it makes, makes this movie have a lot of energy, even though sometimes I am left wondering how characters got to certain places and why they're doing certain things. But hey, it never has bothered me in the past. The only Scout- part of that that really bothers me is when he when the when the axe murderer comes back from the dead and sure. there's fucking cars everywhere and he's like, I'm just going to run. I'm just going to hop this fence and run. <laughs> and I'm like, there's no fucking way. That dude's getting in a car. There's no way. He's like, no, I'll just hoof it. I'll just fucking hoof it to the dead guy no uh, way that's, that's one of my favorite uh little, little pieces of camera work in the entire film is when it's kind of panning around and then you just see his legs just kind of flop down because yeah, he yeah. climbed over the fence i love that i mean it really does feel like it's, uh, it's awesome it just doesn't make any sense but it's awesome it's like cool. it's, it's really cool scout what are your thoughts on tom atkins in general and his performance in this film i love tom atkins i mean what's not to love he was sure. sort of the character of the sort of you know, the wave of blue collar horror revisionism that was going on throughout the 80s, where he's in things like Maniac Cop, um, maybe the great New York movie of that period. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's in this. He's, of course, in Halloween 3 and, and uh, The Fog. I just, I think he's great. Oh, he's also in uh, The Ninth Configuration, which is one That's of my right. favorite That's right, one films. of my favorite films. Oh, yeah. He's just, I mean, there's nothing not to love about him. He was that guy that if you needed that, you know, that kind of rock rock solid delivery of exposition and stuff like that there was nobody better and he had a real face too we've completely forgotten about what those used to look like in films now and uh i just you know he's a he's a lovable lovable fixture and uh as you're saying this is you know this is perhaps not the most challenging work he's ever done but he sure (laughs) aces the assignment um i uh yeah i like i like the 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 weird fake out of when he brings he brings the kid to uh, to his apartment to tell him the story of the axe murderer, and he puts two glasses of whiskey down, only pours one, and then hands it to the kid. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely odd behavior, but that's the kind of thing that you sort of assume that he's just he's got you know tricks like that up his sleeve uh, at all at all times. Um, and of course he would, he would keep doing stuff like this. He's in, uh, a couple of George Romero movies as exactly this character, you know, he's in Bruiser and, uh, Two Evil Eyes. Um, my, my, one of my dear friends is a horror novelist named Lucas Mangum. Um, and he, uh, he helped me write a sci-fi movie and stuff. But anyway, he was friends with Christian Grillo who made a couple of movies, uh, uh, you know, 10, five, 10 years ago. And he made a point of casting, uh, Tom Atkins, because you know he was the guy he was he was he was a more interesting sort of um 
you know, artifact of that period because A, he he gave off this sort of beautiful normalcy, which is just so missing from so many of our of our modern performers. Even somebody like, you know, the, funnily enough, the person that you would sort of look at and think would be the sort of heir to somebody like Tom Atkins is Michael Shannon. But he's, sure. of course, you know, the most intense actor alive. So <laughs> you, you can't just have him play a normal normal detective or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's I, 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 I have much, much fondness for uh, for Tom Atkins. There's a, a collection of actors, and probably I'd include Barbara Crampton within this group, where if you look at their IMDb profiles, you see a lot of kind of straight work for a very extended period of time. Even after they'd worked in horror and made some very kind of uh, notable horror films. And then there's like a stretch in the 90s where they're doing kind of smaller parts. Or with Tom Atkins, he's like he's doing a lot of TV work. He's on Law & Order, that sort of thing. And then there's like a little break. And then there's just low budget horror movies. Exactly. Yeah. Forward. That's the the gal the gal who plays uh, uh, Cynthia in this took a break mm -hmm. from acting. Except now she's in a movie that's coming out either this year or next year called like Cannibal Campout or some goddamn thing. Naked Cannibal Campout. Naked like... Cannibal. Just like so embarrassing. But it's you know because it was guys who were raised on these movies finally making their own Night of the Creeps exactly. without realizing that. Night of the Creeps was already its own Night of the Creeps, and we don't need another one, certainly. And all of these movies that are just sort of delivery systems for the endorphin that comes from, like, oh, I know that guy, you know. It's Linnea Quigley and, uh, you know, whoever else. I mean, Barbara Crampton, thankfully, has been uh, uh, fortunate enough to find directors and writers who actually treat her like the true actress that she is. Exactly, is absolutely. But, uh, yeah, uh, that's a lot of... Um, it looks, there's, yeah. there's certainly a level below what we're talking about right now, where we're just having appeared in some of those uh, those classic horror films of the late '70s, early '80s, mid '80s. Yeah, well, you've seen people make their entire career on a combination of convention appearances and appearances in low-budget movies. But hey, who am I to complain? It's kind of our bread and butter on some of these podcasts, Liam. <laughs> that's true. No, that's very true. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's that's a fair comment. We're here to talk about the actor Dick Miller, who has a very small appearance in Night of the Creeps as the police armory guard Walt, almost certainly short for Walter, almost certainly very short for Walter Paisley in this film. Uh, he only has one short scene where Tom Atkins is looking to get some uh, equipment to deal with these uh, alien zombies. And in, in particular, he's looking to get a flamethrower. He does not have permission to do so. Uh, they have obviously a kind of a playful relationship, but in order to get the flamethrower without permission to do so, he uh, has to point his shotgun at Dick Miller, who uh, quickly realizes, I guess, what the game is and passes, his, passes it over. Uh, it is a very memorable sequence in the film. It is... I think it's clear that even if you don't have the sort of affection that Liam and I, and obviously Scout as well, have for Dick Miller as a performer, that there's a recognition that when he appears in this, that there's kind of a warmth that you feel towards him. He has that very much kind of a put-upon attitude, but here it's kind of in a much friendlier package. It's just nice to see him in this movie. Though I don't know if that would necessarily extend to people outside of the kind of people who listen to Dick Miller podcast, but that's okay because I'm talking to you listener right now. It's okay to enjoy Dick Miller and anything that you see him in. I want to get both of your takes on his performance here. Again, I know it's just one scene. Scout, what do you think of Dick Miller in Night of the Creeps? It, it, uh, an incredible walk-on. Um, yeah. It's, he... 
even next to somebody like Tom Atkins, he is so relaxed and such a fucking professional mm-hmm. that uh, he kind of puts everyone else in the movie to shame in his, you know, 30 seconds of screen time, which is, again, just just a fantastic, like, how you know, who else? Who, who but Dick Miller could show up for a minute and show up everyone in the cast? And that's not to say everybody isn't doing a decent job, but man, oh man, that's... That's a that's a pro right there. That's uh, I just I just love him. And I was also something funny about the idea that as soon as he sees the you know Tom Atkins put the shell in the shotgun, there's some part of him that's recognizing this exact thing from the Terminator and going, I know how this ends. <laughs> He's just being reborn again and again. Exactly. Yes. Situations. Exactly. <laughs> It's an interesting way to think about a lot of this kind of, um, particularly post-Gremlins career of oh, Dick yeah. Miller with a lot of these smaller <laughs> appearances. Uh, this this performance reminds me a little bit, even though it's, it's a very different kind of film, of his very short performance in After Hours, the Martin Scorsese film. Absolutely. Where he shows up in the diner for just that one scene. But again, there's so much warmth around that character. Uh, and and it, it feels like he has a lot of backstory that we are not necessarily serially privy to, but that it, it kind of enhances the sequence because you know that the relationship that he has in this movie with Tom Atkins, that there's a lot to go back to there, that there's a lot that has already happened. And that in some way, this is quite a betrayal for someone that Indeed. he sees Indeed. as a kid to him or as his friendship that is pointing a gun at him and threatening his life. Uh, but I guess that just kind of uh, reaffirms that his, that Tom Atkins' decision to, uh, spoiler alert, blow himself sky high in this movie was probably the only way out at that point. Uh, Liam, your thoughts on Dick Miller in Night of the Creeps? I mean, I think we've said it's, even with the smallest roles, and this is part of the joy of us doing this podcast, Doug, is that so far at least, even in the smallest roles, Dick Miller's Dick Miller, and he adds something. It's it's like you really only need a little bit of him in your movie to add a little bit of that flavor that you need. And and for me, this moment has always been memorable as a watcher of this film, even when I wasn't particularly knowledgeable about who Dick. You know what I mean? Like I like we've said on the show before, I was vaguely aware of him as like the guy from Gremlins and the guy from The Howling, but I wasn't necessarily like aware of his legacy. And yet I remember this moment very, very well. It's, you know, in my brain because of the strength of his performance. So I got to say he's, he's pretty awesome in, in, in this short bit we get him in this movie. When, when he sees uh, Jason Lively's character, Chris, and he's got the tux on for the prom, and he's like, what is it, Halloween or something? That's just such a yeah. Dick Miller. It's strange to think that there's kind of a thorough line in terms of the kind of roles that Dick Miller played to the point where it's just like, of course he would say that. Of course. And then he'd say, hey, kid, I'm only kidding. When this, in some ways, this and you know maybe combined with the Terminator, and we've talked about some of the other roles, but those kind of short roles where he looks at his most Dick Millerist, those are the things that I most connect with him as an actor. And I mean, it in some ways I feel a little bad, right? It's like, why couldn't Dick Miller have a larger part in this movie? Why couldn't he have a larger part in a lot of these movies that we're talking about? But when you see him in this, it's so perfect for that moment. It feels like nobody else in the world could have been in that role except for Dick Miller. And it, it's, uh, you know, there are there are films that we've already talked about on this podcast, like his performance in the, in, in not the Explorers, in Joe Dante's Explorers, which, you know, have a little bit more depth to them and have a little bit more interest. But still, when you talk about that guy, Dick Miller, you're not going to get more that guy than his appearance in 
Night of the Creeps, which is explicitly cast with him to be that guy. You see him and you know what he is and his connection to the history of film. I just love seeing him in this film. Again, it's no surprise. We have a Dick Miller podcast that we love seeing him generally, but this is one of those films where he really does kind of raise the uh, the quality of, of the entire film just by being in it for a single scene, which is not a lot of actors can do, and maybe not a lot of the actors that we have podcasts devoted to are able to do necessarily. That's fair. That's very fair. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, any final thoughts on Night of the Creeps? I mean, I think... It, for anyone who feels like horror and comedy are not two flavors that do not belong together, right? Uh, I would recommend this movie. It's great. I really enjoy it. I love that Dick Miller is in it. Um, it has lots of moments that that are just really satisfying to me. It's not the sort of thing that like encourages deep reflection, but I have fun with it every time I watch it. There's been some talk over the last few years about a potential sequel for Night of the Creeps. Of course, Tom Atkins is getting up there, but he certainly has uh, expressed interest in returning if that was to ha happen. That might be very difficult, uh, depending on which ending to this film that you uh, you take as canon. But uh, would you be interested in that, Liam, to see a sequel to Night of the Creeps this, uh, this long after the fact? No, thank you. No, thank you. Leave it as is. That's what you say. Scout, how about you? Uh, any thoughts towards the p potential of a sequel and any final thoughts on Night of the Creeps? I think uh, perhaps the hour has passed for a sequel to <laughs> Night of the Creeps, and I also would uh, warn against remaking it. I just feel that that could, you could never quite capture the alchemy that comes from a film like this. Uh, not least because if you, I mean, they're doing it all the time. I mean, there was, I, I believe, last week there was a Slumber Party Massacre remake released That's on Sci-Fi, mm -hmm. and uh, we will we will have forgotten that that movie exists by the time this recording has ended. And I, I, just to interrupt you for a second, do you have any affection, uh, Scout, for Slither, the, a movie that is often compared to Night of the Creeps, though uh, James Gunn said that he, I, I guess he said that he hadn't seen the film when he came up with that idea. Yeah, I don't uh, believe that for a moment. Um, <laughs> I think he's lying. I think James Gunn is a liar. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. He's <laughs> simply... No fucking way that uh, the man who made Slither had never seen Night of the Creeps. That's just a goddamned lie. Um, I I mean, I have long ago lost patience with James Gunn, uh, but that really takes the cake. <laughs> I, Scott, any final thoughts on Night of the Creeps? <laughs> yeah, I... To, to speak to one particular moment in the in the scene with Dick Miller that I find funny is, um, you know, so Tom Atkins shows up and asks for the flamethrower, which <laughs> is a funny thing in hindsight. But of course, if you had been watching all the 80s horror movies that this, rep, you know, references and aliens and the thing and, you know, uh, the flamethrower wouldn't have seemed all that out of place. But of course, there isn't a single police department in the country that simply has a goddamn flamethrower just sitting around. And it's one of those things like quicksand that you sort of assume just comes up more often <laughs> in uh, reality than it does because it's in every yeah. other movie. But uh, yeah, there was there was need of flamethrowers in the 80s, and so everyone had them. And where do you go to get a flamethrower? You go to Dick Miller's office. And... Uh, and the pilot light goes out sometimes. And the so you pilot gotta be light goes out. You gotta be careful. Not only do they have a flamethrower, they have a flamethrower that's seen so much use that it's not even reliable anymore. And uh, uh, yeah, I think we appreciated that little touch. I think we can all give a a, a strong uh, uh, 
maybe strong is too strong, but I mean, I still give a, a large recommendation for Night of the Creeps. Again, if you're the kind of person who's listening to this podcast, it's probably a movie you are already intimately familiar with. And if you're not, very much uh, worth going out of your way to check out. Not only a great Dick Miller performance, but a lot of kind of very memorable uh, moments in it. And if you're a fan of the Monster Squad, you can see where uh, Fred Decker kind of uh, built his career before ending it uh, very quickly with uh, Robocop 3. Actually, I shouldn't say that, of course. He certainly went on to doing a lot of uh, writing work. I enjoy a lot of his Tales from the Crypt episodes as well. And uh, he's still out there. Who knows what uh, we may still get, Night of the uh, Creeps 2 in one of these days, uh, though it doesn't seem like either Scout or Liam are very enthusiastic about that idea at all. Scout, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of a very busy schedule to come and talk to us about Dick Miller, about Night of the Creeps, about all sorts of things. Uh, Where can people check out your work? Where can people purchase your book? Where can people find you on the internet? If you go to the Miniver Press website, I believe there are a couple of links that'll help you uh, buy my book, Cinemophagy. Um, you can get it on most online retailers and a handful. Of, I mean, I think if you go to your brick and mortar bookstore, which is what you should do and, and request it, they can get it in. So you should you should do that and help out your local as well as, uh, uh, you know, getting your getting your hands on a true revisionist work of American film uh, writing. Uh you can find me at patreon.com slash honors zombie. Uh, every week, a new video essay, most of them exclusive to the Patreon. Uh, every week, two pieces of written criticism. Every week, a flashback of some kind or a supplemental uh, archival auxiliary piece. All that for the low, low cost of either $4 a month or $41 a year. Um, you are certainly welcome to donate more. I would appreciate it. Uh, keeps the lights on in my little low ceiling department here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, I uh, every month uh, you can find me at RogerEbert.com writing. Oh, sorry, uh, 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 writing and editing uh, a new installment of the Unloved, which takes a look at the uh, maligned and orphaned works of uh, cinematic history. Um, we are coming up on the eighth anniversary, uh, which is a very exciting milestone for for me and. Uh, and then after that, shortly, we're coming up in the 100th episode early next year. So uh, stay tuned. Lots of fun, exciting things going on there. But you can also find me in the many, many places where I've uh, contributed in the past. I just wrote a piece that I like a lot for Dread Central about the history of the Canadian slasher film. Um, and uh, I've been, you know, I've been I've been all all over the, the map. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that piece in particular, find. by the way. The, oh, the thank you the so much. Film. A really great work. Uh, obviously, something that I have. A direct connection to being Absolutely. Canadian myself. Um, you're the you're the you're the guy who's who's uh, uh, muster it needed to pass. <laughs> That's right. The only the only critic worth listening to was Dilly <laughs> with regards to that. No, and I really liked it. And of course, you can find Scout as well on Twitter at honors underscore zombie. I'll leave a link to that and all of these other things that you mentioned in the show notes for this episode. Thank but thank you again, Scout. Thanks always for having me, guys. This is always a lot of fun. Liam O'Donnell. Speaking of pleasure. What a pleasure it is to spend a little time with my good friend Liam O'Donnell when talking about Dick Miller. It's a good good bit of fun for me, Liam. I like having a little fun with my good friend Liam O'Donnell. <laughs> I appreciate that. But now I'm like, what's the joke that you're setting me up for? There's what no joke the... at all, Liam. I just okay, want to know. Good. I want you to know how appreciated you are. You're like the Dick Miller to me in that you're like, that guy is a guy that I like a lot. And that's you, uh, Liam O'Donnell. Liam, where can people find your work uh, at the time that we are recording this, it'll be after the Cineween event over at Cinepunks, but sure. still a lot of work to go back and look over uh, a piece a day uh, coming out over there. 
yeah, they can head over to cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. As you said, uh, we've been doing Cineween stuff all of October. Uh, a real interesting variety of material, and we have to thank a lot of our friends for that. Uh, yeah, the staff has been writing, but we've also had a ton of interesting guests write stuff for us, and we really appreciate that as well. Um, they can also find Cinepunks on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is just C I N E P U N X Cinepunks on all of them. Uh, if you know they want to check out some of the archive of this podcast, they can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com, uh, where they can find all the different shows that we do, whether it's uh, more of our Dick Miller show, but we also have shows about Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi, uh, shows exploring the history of genre film festivals, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, that's the website to check out. Uh, we also post whenever we release a new episode of any of these shows, uh, on our Twitter, at CinemaSmorg, that's S-M-O-R-G. You can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter, at LiamRules, that's R-U-L-Z, and I'm on there as well, at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y. We recently launched a new podcast on the network, Liam, uh, devoted to the work and life of actor George Kennedy, called George Kennedy is My Co-Pilot. You can check that out over at CinemaSmorgasBoard.com, and of course, yeah, exactly as Liam said on Twitter at Cinema Smorg. That's S M O R G. Uh, if you like what you're listening to right now, you could leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. But for now, we all need to take a little rest, a little break. We're going to be back very soon with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everyone. Liam, you got to say good night as well. Good night. My true love was true